we love our friends, and I appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate our friends. Uh, we talked about Ruth and her example as a friend this morning, and that's who we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Ruth. Uh, everything that we talk about from this pulpit and in our Bible classes are real stories. I mean, these really happened. These aren't just these aren't just fairy tales. These aren't just something that the Grimm's brothers thought up back in the 1800s. These are, are real life stories. Everyone likes a good story. I especially like a good rags to riches story, a, a Cinderella story, if you will, where the deserving get the good they deserve. But not before overcoming some incredible obstacles. I like stories, like I said, especially like this, when they're, when they're true stories. I love hearing the stories of how people met and, and fell in love. I, I do. I, I, I'm a romantic at heart. Our, our own ancestors are a treasure trove of, of these stories. I've heard stories from, from you about how each and every one of you met. I mean, you remember when you came over to my house? That's one of, the, one of my main questions was, how did you guys meet? Pat McGuire's told me some wonderful stories about, about this whole congregation. My own mother and father, they have a great story. My grandmother has a, has a great story. You know, she didn't think she would ever have children. And she married a man who had five children, thinking she would never have children. And then she had six. What a great story. What a wonderful story. We have those stories in the Bible, and they're, they're passed down. They, we hear them over and over, and they're passed down to, to the next generation. And, 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 our, and we, you know, parents and, and, and grandparents, we need to tell those stories to our children. We need to make sure that we sit down and we tell those stories and, and pass those stories along because our story becomes their story. And that's the way it is in the Bible as well. In the book of Ruth, we have one of these amazing stories. The author of Ruth is not identified, and Jewish tradition attributes the book to Samuel. But I believe the more credible scholars and have no problem with an unnamed writer of Luke. At the end of Luke chapter 4, verse, verse 17 and verse, verse 22, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, there's a pew Bible in front of you. I won't have a lot of scriptures on the screen Today, So if we're looking at scriptures, I hope, hope you'll be able to turn there and look there with me. At the end of Ruth uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 17 and verse 22, David is mentioned as part of the family tree. Uh, Samuel was dead before David's coronation as, as king of Israel. So this makes Samuel, as the author of Ruth, more uncertain. Okay, uh, Henry Haley said that the... Genealogy at the end of Ruth was the reason the book was written in the first place. That's, that's the reason he, he puts that in there. It shows that Ruth and Boaz had a son, Obed, who had a son, Jesse, whose son was David. And that David's son and heir of the throne, uh, Solomon, he's not mentioned, leads the best scholars to say that Ruth was written sometime during the reign of David. So this short Old Testament book, though, is, is so profound. It has so much to offer us. It's a model of literary beauty. It's filled with, with spiritual value, even for us today here at Fountainhead. And I hope to bring what Ruth can mean to those of us at Fountainhead here today. 
the Old Testament was written for our learning. And here we see in the book of Ruth, love demonstrated and love rewarded. And that's what I hope you'll get out of this, this lesson this evening, that, that love, when it's demonstrated, will be rewarded. The date of Ruth is uncertain, but it's understood to have taken place in the latter part of, of the judges. When judges ruled the land, they didn't have kings in the land. They had, they had judges who, who ruled the land. Uh, you know, this is around 1200, some sources say, to a 1100 B.C. This, this, this is a short book. It's in, it's in four chapters, and it covers about 12 years of the life of Ruth. During the life of Ruth, there was no king in Israel, as we've said. Judges ruled the lands, and their time was, was much like ours today. There was so much immorality. There was so much idolatry. There was so much war that was happening. And that, that could be said of our day as well. What could be said of them could be said of our day. Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But the book of Ruth is like an oasis in the desert. In this study, I, wanna, I want us to understand three things, like I've said. I want us to understand, I want us to see true agape love, love demonstrated, and because wise spiritual choices were made, as you'll see, I want you to see how love is rewarded. The third thing I want you to understand is how this story is part of your story. And this is a story that you can tell others and make them a part of this story as well. This story is your story. And I want you to see how it is. Okay? The book of Ruth begins in the land of Moab. The Moabites were distant kin to the Israelites because the Moabites were descendants of Lot. If you remember Lot and Abraham, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Ruth was a Moabite woman. The land of Moab was a region east of the Dead Sea, about 40 miles as the crow flies across the Dead Sea from the land of Judah, but over 100 miles to Bethlehem by land. Ruth begins in the land of Moab when the family of Elimelech and Naomi had moved there to escape famine in their native Judah. Elimelech and Naomi were from the tribe of Judah, the city of Bethlehem is where they were from, where they had rights to ancestral property. And I want you to keep that in mind. They had rights to ancestral property, and this is going to come into play later in our story. The Moabites, they didn't worship God. They worshiped a God called Chemosh. I hope I'm not murdering that. Chemosh, but he was a murderer. Uh, if, if there, there, since there wasn't such a God, the, the people who, who worshipped him were murderers. They sacrificed infants to the God Chemosh in Moab. In the books of the Old Testament of history, we read how several times Moab and, and Israel, they were fighting, they were in a war, they were in a, in a conflict with each other. They, they should have been, they were very close to each other, not far away. Elimelech and Naomi had two sons. They both married Moabite women. These two sons married Moabite women. Elimelech died, and he left Naomi a widow. Many times widows were left to fend for themselves during this period of history. But Naomi was blessed because she had two sons who would help her. 
She was not left alone. She was not left destitute. But then, after her husband died, both of her sons died. And now there were three widows. One of which is our protagonist in this story, Ruth. Times were hard, and they just got harder. There was no government help to fall back on. Now I'm reading a book that said only about 4.5% of the people who have ever lived, now think about the billions and billions of people who have ever lived on the earth, only 4.5% of the people who have ever lived on the earth have what we have in the United States. They may have had it in a different country or, 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 or a very short period of history and time, but only about 4.5% of the billions, 80%, 80, get this, 80% of the billions who have ever lived were slaves. Brother Parker was talking about how thankful we should be to have what we have, to live in the country that we live in, to worship the God that we worship. Oh, we should be thankful. Very, very thankful. But with the deaths of their husbands, these three women were destitute. They had no property. They had no money. Naomi heard that back home in Israel, Ruth 1 verse 6, that God made sure his people got bread. Naomi wanted this, this hope for her daughter-in-laws. And Ruth and Orpah, uh, they started on their way back to Bethlehem with Naomi. But she advised them to turn back and go home to their own parents. They were younger women. They could marry again. But without their help, Naomi knew that she would have a hard time. She would surely have been destitute. She would probably have become a beggar. Orpah, with a lot of tears, did so. She returned to her family, but Ruth, verse 14, clung to her mother-in-law. They, they'd spent the last 10 years together. They had just gone through some of the worst times that someone could endure together, the loss of a spouse. They were survivors in the battle of life. They were very close. Orpah made a good choice. But it was the best choice for her. Ruth made a good choice, as we'll see. But it was the best choice for Naomi. You see the difference? Naomi begged her to return with Orpah. But Ruth says the now famous words in Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. I read this this morning. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. You know, we read this in, in weddings a lot of times. It, that, that shows that union, that love between the husband and the wife. But these are two women. These are friends. These are friends. And th they'd been through it together. They, they loved each other that much, though. What a wonderful friendship. In an immoral world, Ruth makes a moral choice. You know, every day, we are faced with decisions, right and wrong, good and bad, 
good and better. Better and best. Ruth loved Naomi. Their problems were were intertwined. Orpah's decision was not a bad decision. And she probably went home and she probably remarried and had children and died in obscurity. But Ruth, oh, what a life she led. What a legacy she left behind because she didn't just choose the better. She chose the best. She vindicated the decision made by her ancestor Lot. She made a decision that would affect you and me eternally, as we'll see. For in the fields of Bethlehem, where we are about to read that she gleaned barley, in these same fields of Bethlehem, many years later, shepherds were startled by the angels announcing the birth of Ruth's great, 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 grandson, Jesus Christ. When Ruth went with her mother, she made a great moral decision. But what we really see about Ruth here is that she had the right attitude. She had a wonderful attitude. Naomi and Ruth returned from the land of Moab to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 1, verse 22. They must have stayed in the city of Bethlehem. Chapter 2, verse 18. And and Naomi and Ruth must have talked a lot about their situation. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, Ruth asked permission to go and glean barley grain from the fields of Naomi's husband's relative, a wealthy man named, named Boaz was his name. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, God commanded farmers in Israel to to not completely harvest their fields. They were told to cut corners, if you will, and leave some behind. And if they were happened to be working in the field and they dropped a bundle of grain, they were supposed to just leave it for the poor to come and pick up. This is so the poor could what we call glean. They could collect the the small bits of barley and wheat for themselves. This is kind of foreign to us, isn't it? To leave something behind for, 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 for those around us. No, I, I wouldn't say that it's foreign to Fountainhead. Now, let me rethink that. I'm on the fly here right now, Timothy. Let me rethink that because we have a pantry downstairs that most of the time has done very well. You should be proud of that. It's like, you're, it's like this. You're cutting corners so that others can have. That's very good. It's not foreign to us here at Fountainhead. This made sure that the farmer's heart was right when he cut the corners because it had to be generous. His heart had to be generous. But it also commanded the poor to be active in their work for food. Now that may be foreign to us. That may be foreign to us. There's a great dignity in work. In a time of darkness... Morally, though, in this story, there's a light that goes on. A beautiful light. That light that goes on is Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, as I've said, had such the heart of a servant. And when you do good things, good things come. Ruth 
was a worker. She wasn't lazy. She could have played the victim, but she refused to play the victim. She'd had bad things happen to her, yes, but she hung in there. She did the right things in the right ways. I like to picture her as beautiful in my mind. I like to picture her that way. But I like to think that what attracted her to Boaz was her awesome attitude. If you read the exchange between Ruth and Boaz in the field and at the table at mealtime, you can kind of put yourself in, in their place with all the rest of the people that, that were there, Boaz's workers and staff. And, you know, they had to be around as they were talking and going, you know, y'all know that look. You know, we might give it to somebody when we, when we know two people maybe liking each other. We'll give that, you know, the eyebrow raise and the, oh, the head nod, you know. You know, they, you know that's what they were doing. Boaz and Ruth, they were talking. Boaz was being really nice and really gentle and really generous to Ruth. And you know the rest of the guys were going, Whether Boaz and Ruth found each other attractive or not, they were a light to each other. They did things right. Do you know people like that that, that do, it, do everything right? That's what they did. They did everything right. Boaz was so kind to Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 13, Ruth says, you have, you have comforted me. By the way you've talked to me, by the way you've acted toward me, you've, you've comforted me. And Boaz was kind and she got to glean in the in the best of the field not 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 in the edges not just not just in the edges but he he told the boys to to leave her alone not to get mad or rebuke her or to touch her and and she didn't have to draw water for herself she got to drink the water that they drew from the whales she was treated like she was part of the group why? Huh, hey, you know what? Ruth, Ruth wanted to know that, that answer too. She asked that question, why? Did she feel like Boaz had some kind of ulterior motive? I don't, I don't know. But she asked. In church, we learn a very important lesson. What you do is told. Good or bad, what you do is told. People know about it. Your name precedes you many times. Boaz's answer to why are you being so good to me was this. Verse 11, And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and... A full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? Boaz was so kind because of who she had ran to in times of trouble. And Boaz lets her, lets her know that it's really not me who's kind, but it's God. When we are benevolent to others, we must stress that when a person asks for help, they know who really is helping. Not us, but God Almighty. 
And Ruth and Boaz, they have such kind words for each other. Our speech should always be with grace, the apostle said. With Ruth and Boaz, they had wonderful speech toward each other. And and Ruth found companionship. She found protection. She found refreshment in Boaz. And Boaz gives Ruth an, an ephah, about 30 to 50 pounds of grain, chapter 2, verse 17. And when Ruth takes this back to Naomi, Naomi wants all the details. She wants all the details. Verse 19, where did you glean? Who took notice of you? Boaz, Ruth says. Look at Naomi's reaction. It almost makes you want to cry. This woman who, who's been through so much darkness, she can finally see the light. Verse 20, then Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi praises God as well. When we are around unbelievers or new believers, make sure that we give credit to where credit is due. God Almighty. Naomi was excited as well. Verse 20, because Boaz Boaz was a, a close relative. Naomi knew the law, and she knew the system. As we've discussed, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and Naomi, they were of the tribe of Judah. They're in Bethlehem, and they had rights. Even though they had moved to Moab, they had rights to ancestral property. But when Naomi's husband and son died, they were, as women, unable to regain their property rights. Unless two things, legal things, happened. Number one, a leverratic marriage had to happen. And number two, there had to be a redemption of the land. The redemption of the land custom obligated the next of kin to buy back the property that had been sold because of poverty. So it could stay in the family. This law is found in Leviticus 25 verses 25 through 28. The marriage custom was found in Deuteronomy 25 Verses 5 through 10, it required the nearest relative of a deceased man to marry his widow. And any offspring from this marriage carried the name and inheritance of the former husband. Since Naomi was beyond childbearing years, now get this, since she was beyond childbearing years, Ruth became her substitute. The advice that Ruth now gives excuse me, the advice that Naomi now gives Ruth must be seen in the context in the way that Naomi tells Ruth to act in that day. We may think the advice and actions to be very strange as we we look at them in chapter 3, but at this time, in this place, this was the proper way to act. We have proper ways of acting in our society too. With all its faults in our society, there's a right way and a wrong way to do anything. And even if someone would get mad if you did something the wrong, even if somebody wouldn't get mad if you did something the wrong way, they would appreciate you doing it the right way more. Naomi knows the law. It's always best if you know the rules and play within the rules. Naomi knew that the 
man who found Ruth favorable was the family Goel, G-O-E-L. It's a Hebrew word. He was the family Goel. Sometimes it's translated kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer. According to the law of Moses, a kinsman redeemer had certain obligations. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 48, he would buy his kin out of slavery. Numbers 35 verse 19, he became the avenger of blood to make sure the the murder of a family member was answered for. And as we've said, he was responsible for buying back forfeited family land and carrying on the, the family name by marrying the childless widow. Boaz was a recognized Goel, kinsman redeemer of the family of Elimelech. And Ruth could appeal to Boaz to carry on Elimelech's land and name. She could do that by him marrying her. Okay? This may seem really forward, but it was the way things done then. It was the proper way. I want you to understand that they're doing things the proper way, the right way, in a, in, a, in a time of darkness when people did what they wanted to in their own eyes, whatever they thought was right, that's what they did. They did things the right way, by the law, God's law. Naomi gives Ruth advice that seems very strange today. The harvest was over and a crew was winnowing barley on the thrashing floor of Boaz. Boaz, it is estimated, would have had thousands of pounds of barley and, and wheat and other crops to process. A threshing floor, this is a picture of a, of a threshing floor, is, according to an encyclopedia, a specially flattened surface, usually circular and paved with stones, where a farmer would thresh the grain and winnow it. Now, the way they would thresh barley was either beat it with, with flails or they would take a board and they would, they would drag the board over it uh, with, with oxen. But they would get those kernels loosened inside the wheat and inside the barley. In Ruth, the winnowing comes after the threshing, so Boaz has already thrashed the grain and he's put the sheaves of grain on the threshing floor. And oxen, they've drug over the barley or wheat with a heavy board which, which tears the ears of grain from the stalks and loosens the grain from their husks. And after the threshing process, the broken stalks and, and grains are collected and they're thrown up into the air with a wooden fork-like tool. I have a picture of that, a, a lady doing that in one of the, the poorer countries of the world. Uh, this was a, a winnowing fork, and she would throw it up, and the wind would take it, and it would take the, the lighter chaff and straw away, and the seed would fall at her feet. The grain would fall at the winnower's feet. This was a critical time. Like today, thieves wait till it's easiest to steal something. Even today, in less developed countries, the owner and his workers sleep on the threshing floor during the winnowing process. Naomi knew all this. And here's what she tells Ruth to do. Chapter 3, verse 3. Therefore, wash yourselves and anoint yourselves, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. Get pretty, she says. Smell good, right? 
Boys, we like girls that smell good, don't we? We like girls that look pretty. Leave Boaz alone while he's eating. Another good, another good point. Leave us alone when we're eating. And then verse 4, it shall be when he lies down, and this is strange now, it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. Now, my wife and I have been married for a few years now, but if she uncovered my feet and laid down, I'd say, what are you doing? Wouldn't you? But this is the way they did things then. We might think this is maybe even a sexually provocative gesture, but it was not. It was an act of total submission. The servant, not just women servants, but men servants at that time, would lay at the feet of their master so that their master needed anything. In the middle of the night, that servant was ready to get up and go get it. This act by Ruth, what she's saying to Boaz is, I trust you. I trust you to do what's best for me. In the New Testament, people would fall at the feet of Jesus and sit at his feet and learn in total submission. Do you know what that means? To be submissive to your master? How can you be submissive to Christ today? I'm going to leave you with that question and we're going to continue. Naomi told Ruth that Boaz will tell you what you should do. They already knew he was a godly man. In the few weeks of the harvest, he had proven that. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands are to love their wives and wives are to submit to their own husbands. Many a man wishes he had a wife like Ruth. But are we the men who like Boaz will follow God's will and lead our families to do His will? Men, are we like Boaz? Are we godly men? Yeah, we want, we want women like Boaz. I mean, we want women like Ruth. But will we be a man like Boaz? That's a man to respect. But a woman like Ruth, is she's easy on the eyes, as we might say. Ruth did what Naomi said. And seemed to be accepted by Boaz. He gave her plenty of what he had to give, about two to three hundred pounds of grain he gives her. And look at Naomi's advice, verse 18. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. This was probably the hardest piece of advice to follow. Isn't it for you a lot of times to sit still, to be still? Letting God be God. Letting people do what they're supposed to be doing. We want to meddle in his business. And Naomi knew that Boaz wouldn't rest until the matter of redeeming was over. And you can tell for her, from her language that she seemed to be a little bit worried. Love has been demonstrated all throughout Ruth. Ruth's love 
Naomi's love, Boaz's love, God's love. Everyone in this wicked world is doing things the right way in our story. Brother Shockley said the other day when he and I were talking, in today's society, people want to blame the times that we live in for the way they act. But not these. Not, not Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. They, they wanted to do things the right way, and they did things the right way. Boaz in chapter 4, he gets busy. He makes things, he makes things right. There's one more hurdle to overcome, though. Boaz was not the closest relative. There was one closer, and Boaz, he knew the law too. He really didn't have to redeem anything or anyone. But we know people usually do what they want to do, and I happen to believe that he loved Ruth. It's the romantic in me. I happen to believe that he loved Ruth and wanted her to be his wife. But to have her, to have her, this closer kin had to give up his right of redemption. So Boaz gets his relative and ten elders, ten elders he gets them at the city gate. This is a, a picture of a, of a city gate. Uh, those stones in the foreground there, those are, that's, those are ancient benches that people would come into the city gate and that's where they would sit and they would do business. During a time of war, if you had to come through that city gate, it would be a place that people could hide and shoot at you or throw stones at you or or try to stab you with a sword. It had twofold purpose, city gates did. But one of the main purposes during times of peace was to hold meetings there. The city gates of the day were a tunnel of rooms for defenders to hide, but they had meeting rooms too. And Boaz tells them, those in the meeting, about Naomi coming back in chapter 4. And he's, he's a close relative, but he's got to give this relative first shot of redeeming the land for Naomi. But if he, he made it clear, if you don't want it, I do. Boaz made it very clear. If you don't want this land, I do. I'm second in line, and, and I'm hoping you don't want it. Boaz and Ruth's worst fear was realized. This guy, this guy wanted the land. If he redeems it, Boaz and Ruth will never marry. They'll never have Obed. They'll never have Jesse. They'll never have David the king, nor Solomon, nor all the way down the line. Do you see the plan unfolding? In chapter 4, verse 4, I will redeem it was the response. But Boaz continues. Boaz knew the law now. When you do, he says, you must buy it from Ruth the Moabite to perpetuate the name. In other words, you got to marry Ruth in this deal. This relative was looking for some land, but he wasn't looking for a wife. He didn't know that came with the deal. He didn't know Ruth. In verse 6, he says, Lest I run into my own inheritance, I don't want this. Lest I ruin my own inheritance, I don't, I don't want to do this. And said, I can't redeem it. You do it, Boaz. And Boaz gets his witnesses real quick. He makes the formal announcement and the blessing of the elders at Bethlehem is so beautiful that they would prosper. That's their blessing, that, that, that Ruth and, and Boaz would prosper because of the offspring, verse 12, from this young woman. Ruth became 
Boaz's wife. And I happen to think that David liked this story. I like the story of my grandparents. I like the story of my parents. I like those stories. I happen to think David liked the story of his, of his great-grandmother and father. They're mentioned again in, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of Boaz and Ruth. Henry Haley points out Boaz was a descendant of Rahab the harlot. So Obed, the, the son of Boaz and Ruth, was part Canaanite and part Moabite. And part Israeli, too. He says, It is fitting that from this bloodline would come the Messiah for all nations. And the concept of kinsman redeemer or goel is a shadow of the work of Christ as well. Before one could become a kinsman redeemer, they had to be related by blood. It says so in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Jesus is the Word, John 1, 1. And the Word became flesh, John 1, 14. And in Him, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. The kinsman redeemer must be able to pay the price of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 We were not redeemed with silver and gold, but His blood was the price. A true kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem as well. Jesus was. Matthew 20, verse 28. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. Oh, we have a kinsman redeemer too. It's Jesus Christ. Notice the last part of this verse. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. All throughout Ruth, we've seen love demonstrated. And in the end, love rewarded. In the whole life of her grandchild Jesus... You can see, love demonstrated. And because he died for us, was, was buried and rose again. And we can see love rewarded as well. God made Jesus Lord and Christ. Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Jesus said, you were his friend. Like we said this morning, you were his friend if you did what he said. If you did what he commanded. Have you shown your love by keeping his commandments? Here's a promise. John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will make our home with him. In your life, now and forever, the love you demonstrate for Christ will be rewarded. Everyone likes a good story. How will yours end? I hope it ends in Jesus Christ. I hope you will choose tonight to be redeemed by the Redeemer. If you need to put Jesus Christ on in baptism or if you need prayers...
or something that's gone awry in your life. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. It's my hope that today will start a new chapter.